Psalm 62, 1 through 12. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, I wanted to uh, just give a quick reminder. We're still having our long underwear drive which is where we all donate funds to make a bulk purchase of long underwear from the Army-Navy store and donate it to Denver Rescue Mission. That way, uh, uh, homeless people around this time of year can layer in order to keep warm. Um, something we've done for a couple of years, so that's still going on. If you go to l2church.com give, or you can just click on the Give tab, and then when you're donating, instead of selecting General Fund, or let me, sorry, I misspoke, after you've donated to General Fund, <laughs> then you click uh, Long Underwear Drive and you can donate there. So just wanted to give that as a quick reminder of a way we can help our community this holiday season. Um, we are in the midst of our series called The Anatomy of the Soul. We borrowed that from John Calvin's description of the Psalms as he said that they describe anything that can take place in the human soul is captured in the Psalms. And the way that we're approaching them is we're noticing how they relate to our emotions and the way that we think of our emotions in our culture. It seems to me that there's two ways that we consider our emotions. One is that your emotions are your truest self. They are the core of your being. So that in order to truly be yourself, you need to be most deeply in touch with your emotions and expressing how you feel. So that leads to Facebook posts like Follow Your Bliss as uh, the, the deepest wisdom of our age. <laughs> I'm glad someone laughed. <laughs> it, there's an age cutoff. If you're, there's a certain age that you were older, you laughed. There's a certain age that you were younger, you went, yeah, follow your bliss. <laughs> um, so that's, our, uh, that's one side of our emotions. The other side is we view our emotions as things to be avoided. As a sort of, we need to develop a sort of stoic detachment from our emotions. So that when you're considering your emotions, those are just distractions, and they aren't revealing anything real about yourself. They're just to be ignored. What's true is your reason, and you need to totally trust your reason in order to be your truest self. But what we see in the Psalms is uh, neither of those extremes. We see a wholehearted way of living in which People are praying in deep connection with their emotions, and we see their emotions laid bare in this full and extremely vulnerable display while they are thinking deeply and intelligently about the truths of Scripture. And so there's this wholehearted way of living, one that doesn't divide you into either an emotional being or a purely rational being, but one that treats you as a full human 
a wholehearted way of living. And so we're looking, how can we live that way? How can we approach God and our faith and our lives, not as these stratified people, but as our whole selves, living as wholehearted people? I think that type of person in the world today would be an extremely attractive and maybe even sometimes frightening type of person to be around. And I think that when we understand Scripture and how we're called to live, that's the way we're called to live. This morning, we are looking at, the title of the sermon is Silence. And that's because a good portion of this psalm, David describes himself as waiting in silence before the Lord, waiting for God alone in silence. And silence is on short supply in uh, our day-to-day lives. Um, so <laughs> I, I was reading an article earlier this week because I was searching for articles on silence, and uh, Finland, the, c- the country of Finland, they recently changed their uh, slogan, like their tourism campaign. Their slogan is now, silence, please. So everybody put away your phones now. You're looking on Expedia, I can tell. Um, but they're, they were basically brainstorming Finland, and they're like, okay, what do we have? What do we have? It's very cold. We have a lot of saunas. Um, and uh, they, came, they realized that it, their silence was actually a resource. The quiet that their nation offered is, is actually something that's extremely rare. It's desirable. Silence is a vacation destination because we've lost it. This loss of silence... I think is actually intentional. David Foster Wallace, in an interview that he conducted uh, with actually a German television program, he offers this meditation on silence, or at least his thoughts on silence and why it is that we seem to avoid silence at all costs. He says, there's an almost dread that comes up, I think, about having to be alone, about having to be quiet. When you walk into most public spaces in America, it isn't quiet anymore. They pipe music through. And the music is easy to make fun of because it is really horrible music, but it seems significant that we don't want things to be quiet anymore. When you feel like the purpose of your life is to gratify yourself and get things for yourself and go all the time, there is this other part of you That's the same part that is hungry for silence, that wants to sit and think about the same thing for maybe half an hour instead of 30 seconds, that doesn't get fed at all. And that manifests in a sense of dread. So he's saying that there's this part of us that because we're so hyper-exposed to just a constant clamor and noise, that begins to sort of deteriorate. And as it goes away, that manifests in a sense of dread that we have about silence. We avoid silence because it exposes somehow this sense of dread about our silence. So, artists, right? (laughs) That's uh, David Foster Wallace's take. There's this sense of dread that's taking over. But there's actually a good reason to believe that this sense of dread is is pretty real. Uh, Scientists, uh, in another article that I read in Nautilus magazine, which is like a popular science magazine, um, which if you're going to listen to scientists, the popular ones are the ones to listen to. They, uh, I stole that joke from friends. That was Chandler Bing made that joke first, so full credit. but there's a, 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 scientists have taken a particular interest in how does silence affect our brains. And the way that the studies started was they were studying how certain noises, in particular noisy environments, affect our brains. And silence was simply the controlled variable. Then they realized that there's tons of brain activity that begins only in silence. And so this controlled variable seemed to become the most interesting parts of the studies. And what they realized was the, there's this sort of background hum 
in our brains. Remember, this is popular science. I'm not a scientist. There's a background hum in our brains that begins in the volume and it increases when we enter silence. And as they research this further, uh, this sort of, they, they call it the default mode of our minds, um, they discovered this, which is, which is pretty interesting. Uh, this is a quote from that article, which is called Your Brain on Science. It says, follow-up research has shown the default mode is also enlisted in self-reflection. So in 2013, in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience, Joseph Moran and colleagues wrote the brain's default mode network is observed most closely during the psychological task of reflecting on one's personalities and characteristics, so self-reflection, rather than during self-recognition, so thinking about yourself physically, like seeing yourself in a mirror, thinking of the self-concept, which would be like, I am a straight, white, Christian male. Um, I learned that in a couple of privilege games. And you can laugh. This is a safe space. Um, and uh, so that would be thinking of yourself in terms of those categories or thinking about self-esteem, for example. So this background hum increases in volume when you're self-reflecting on your most fundamental personalities and characteristics, more than when you're reflecting on all of those other things, even those things that seem to be about yourself. That's really, really interesting. I'll continue the quote. So during this time when the brain rests quietly, wrote Moran and colleagues, our brains integrate external and internal information into a conscious workspace. So there's this idea that silence allows for the volume to be turned up on the most fundamental aspects of our personalities, which means that there's this aspect of silence that, like nothing else, brings us face-to-face -face with ourselves. Silence seems to expose ourselves to ourselves and provides this space for us to, it, it, they, they describe it as a conscious workspace. It allows us to weave ourselves into the fabric of the world so that we can see what is our space in this, knowing our personalities and our characteristics. That's something that happens in silence. So when you combine those two sorts of takes on silence, one from the artist, one from the scientist, of silence being this thing that we avoid and brings about this sense of dread, and the scientific perspective of silence is this necessary space where we become truly exposed to ourselves, that becomes a pretty interesting moment, right? Perhaps that sense of dread that sense of fear of silence is a fear of us truly seeing ourselves. It provides a space for us to see who we truly and most deeply are. So that's enough armchair neuroscience uh, to get to a quote that sort of ties this all together from Abraham Kuyper, who is a theologian, um, in, he, this, this is from 1898, he wrote this. It was a lecture he gave at Princeton, and this lecture was on the future. Um, and now we're here. So he says, really succinctly, the hypertrophy of our external life results in a serious atrophy of the spiritual. So all the clamor, all the noise that we typically engage with that takes up the space that could be used for us to see ourselves as ourselves is actually hurting something else. It's creating an atrophy of our spiritual lives. So in this psalm today, the silence really stands out. 
The psalm that we're looking at today was written by David when he's in the midst of this incredible clamor of people that are looking to literally destroy him, to bring him down from his position as king. And in the midst of this clamor, he addresses it not by shouting back louder, but with an extremely focused silence. It's something that many of us just don't even have the capacity for, that type of focused silence. That part of ourselves has simply atrophied. But David has developed this incredible internal life that allows him to be in the midst of this clamor and move into a focused silence. Many of us have these flimsy understandings of ourselves that just sort of ride these waves or whatever circumstances we happen to be in, that just go along with the clamor. David doesn't seem to be that way. And likewise, even more so, we have these flimsy ideas of who God is that go for those same rides of the clamor of whatever we happen to be engaged with. And we aren't able to approach him with a focused silence that knows God as he is. So we're going to follow this morning the rhythm of David's prayer. And we're going to see how the silence informs that rhythm. And we're not just going to look at this as just a method, right? We're going to see the rhythm of David's prayer, but it's not merely a method. Like if you follow this rhythm, then you will have established a strong internal life that will make you resolute in the face of hardship. Uh, that would be nice. But that book would have been written by Tim Ferriss. <laughs> and, um, and you can just go buy it. Um, this isn't just a method. We're looking at the method, but we're seeing how the method exposes David's true beliefs. The beliefs inform the method. They're the foundation that the method is based on. So I don't want us to miss those core things for just the method. So as we follow this rhythm of his prayer, what we'll see is David, first of all, quiets himself. Then he assesses the situation. Then he focuses his thoughts. And then he pours out his heart. So we're going to see this in four movements. He quiets, he assesses, he focuses, and he pours out. So first, quiets. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2 begins, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So, What's interesting to note is that this psalm actually begins as almost like an interruption. John Calvin, in his assessment of this, he says, actually, a better translation may be uh, that the psalm begins like this. Nevertheless, my soul is silent towards God. See, the psalm begins with this immediate nevertheless. It's breaking in on something, which means that David, in order to quiet his mind, this takes place in real time. He's interrupting thoughts that are already taking place. So I actually think that's pretty comforting because I picture the silent mind, the, this like high religious figure who's able to, ha- who's able to quiet their mind as uh, you know, so, someone who's sort of other than us, whose thought life is so different and unrelatable to mine. But it doesn't seem that different here. Because the way that he must begin to quiet his mind is to interrupt himself. Many of us don't just interrupt ourselves. We don't start with a nevertheless. Instead, we think, okay, this train of thought that I'm on, once I get to the end of it, and I've solved all these problems that I've come up with, then I will be able to have a quiet mind. And so, instead of interrupting ourselves, we follow these thought patterns and these uh, trains of thought to their ends, and and they never end. And our minds just get caught up in this continued, never-ending clamor, because we think that the silence must come after these issues are resolved. And David is doing just the opposite. He starts with this, nevertheless, I, I am interrupting the thoughts that I currently have, 
to bring in violently this silence. So that means he doesn't have a mind like a monk, right? He doesn't have a mind like water. (laughs) Uh, But it's a mind a lot like ours. He just has the courage to interrupt it, to not let it just keep following these trains of thought. So he begins by quieting his mind. And this idea gets reinforced as we look at the text because he says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and my salvation. This repeating of the phrase alone, it it sort of shows us that there must be these other thoughts, these other things that he wants to be his salvation that that are crowding around what God is and the salvation that he is truly offering. That's typical of our minds. Because we think that our salvation and our rescue will actually be on the other side of all of these problems being solved. But David is quick to violently interrupt his thoughts and say, no, it is God alone that my hope rests in. It's God alone that I can hope in. So, from this silence then, that he, he sort of violently creates in himself, he moves into a space where he can actually assess the situation as it is. Not in a way of being totally caught up in it, so that he's trying to trace every contingency to find its resolution, but in a way where he can objectively stand back and assess it. So he says this, Psalm 62, 3-4, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. So David, with this soul that's now only, remember the only, only hoping in God, encounters these enemies that are not an only, they're an all. There are many enemies. There are many difficulties and facets to the issues that he's facing. Uh, I was, I, I've heard it come up when, when enemies, when we talk about enemies and people think like, I don't have any enemies. Like my, <laughs> I was talking with my sister and she's like, I feel like I don't have any enemies. Like, who are my enemies? Like ISIS? <laughs> I was like, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, are they a big problem in 10th grade English classes? Um, but they, uh, many of us think of enemies as these things that are just these like clear cut. And, and often thinking like, I wish that my enemies were just like enemies. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Hurrah. But David's enemies are not that clear cut. These are really difficult social engagements that that he's engaged in. They're full of falsehood and deceit, and it's difficult to tell who are my enemies and who are my friends. Uh, There's so much, you know, history and all these different issues caught up in these relationships where, you know, what's the way out? David's enemies are are no less complex than yours. Don't don't write this off as, as a category that doesn't apply to you. You have issues in relationships and with people, things that are manifesting as enemies, obstacles that are true obstacles that are in your way. So David is able to, the difference is that David has the courage to to call things what they are, to say before God how he's really experiencing these situations, whereas many of us would just write them off. Those aren't real issues. So David is able to assess this situation, and it is a complicated one. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. That's a complicated situation that he's engaging with. That's the type of situation that your mind wants to spend a lot of time on. Your mind wants to latch on to and say, when was the deceit? When was it true? When do I trust them? When, how, does that, how is this going to play out? What, what if I had said this? When, 
What if I had countered with that? Those are the types of things that your mind will want to just latch onto to live in this space of trying to concoct your way out, trying to concoct your vindication in those types of relationships. David, however, instead of getting caught up in that type of a space, he doesn't linger there, but he moves on and he focuses again. He focuses right after this, right after this assessment of saying what the issue really is. He then focuses and says, Psalm 62, 5 through 7, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. See, David's next movement of focusing on God, it sounds almost identical to the interruption that he starts with at the beginning. It's as though he's doing the same thing. He's saying, okay, this is the real situation. This is real in the world, an issue that needs to be dealt with. But I'm not going to just linger on those issues. I'm not going to meditate on these problems, as though the answer is just some lost key that I can wander around my mind and maybe turn over this right stone and find. It says that I know that these issues aren't, aren't like that. They're more complicated than that, which means I need to bring myself back to what my hope truly rests on. And so he refocuses himself. This is almost identical to the first movement, to the first interruption that he makes, but it's different. In the first one, he says, um, for God alone, my soul waits in silence, which means he's sort of describing what his soul is doing. His soul is waiting. In this one, he says, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. It is an urging of his soul. Now, after he's thought about his enemies and he's assessed the situation, he needs to grab his thoughts and bring them back to his focus. He's urging his soul towards this silent waiting before God. We, we often think of silence like a passive thing, but it's, it's very active here. It's more like, remember in Braveheart, when they have the spears that are like the big long tree spears that are on the ground that they're going to use to lift up and hit the charging horses? Everyone's seen Braveheart, right? Yes. So you remember, like there are these giant tree spears down here and the horses of the other people are running towards them. And William Wallace is like, hold, hold. So that looks like doing nothing, right? You're not picking up the tree spear is what they called them. It's an old Gaelic term, tree spear. <laughs> and uh, it looks like doing nothing, not picking it up, right? But that holding is really active. That's a really active thing you need to do. And this silence that David is bringing himself to is that same sort of activity. Your brain wants to just meditate and linger and try and find all the nuances and the subtleties that you can use to twist your own advantage in the particular situations or conflicts that you're engaged with. And so it takes a fierce activity to urge yourself towards a silence where you place your hope now in God instead of your own ability to, fi to figure out the situation. It takes a real activity. You have to hold until that type of right moment. He refocuses. See, our minds are a lot like um, Fezzik in The Princess Bride. Do you remember Fezzik? This is a cinematic morning. <laughs> <laughs> the Braveheart thing I didn't have planned. This one I have planned. But the uh, uh, Fezzik in The Princess Bride, he's Andre the Giant. He's the giant. Anybody want a peanut? So uh, when he is first fighting Wesley, Dread Pirate Roberts, he uh, uh, is actually starting to struggle, and it's ridiculous because Andre the Giant is this huge man and Wesley is this tiny little human person. And... Um, 
uh, he, he's talking about why Wesley is giving him so much trouble, and he says this. It's a really funny scene. He says this. He says, I, I just figured out why you give me so much trouble. And Wesley says, why is that, do you think? And Fezzik says, I haven't fought one person for so long. I've been specialized in groups, battling gangs for local charities, that kind of thing. <laughs> and Wesley says, why should that make such a difference? Fezzik says, you use different moves when you're fighting half a dozen people than when you only have to be worried about one. I think that's what our minds are like. When we try and bring our minds to a, a focus on God alone for our hope, they can't do it. They've, they're struggling because they're used to, they know the moves, we've trained the moves for fighting groups, for looking at the, all the facets of the issues and situations in our lives and spending all of our time there, battling that group, engaged with that group, and so when we say to our minds, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, they don't, they struggle. They're used to fighting groups. David has this well-trained mind where he's able to urge it towards a silent waiting for God alone saying that my hope is totally in what God does here. It's totally there. And that's because of another difference between these verses in 5 through 7 and what sounds almost identical in 1 through 2. And it's this verse, verse 7. It says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. The difference is he adds that on God rests my glory. When you look at what's under threat for David, it's his glory. Now, glory is a weird term. We don't, we don't really use the word glory. And so it can feel like this really intangible thing. But it's actually really tangible. Glory is something that we're engaging with all of the time. So sometimes it's easier to know what a word means by seeing its opposite. And I think a, a helpful opposite of glory is shame. We're familiar with shame. The opposite of shame, when shame is removed, is glory. And David says that on God rests my salvation, and my glory. See, he realizes that the enemies that he's engaging with, they have no real ability to bestow glory. They have no real ability even to take glory. The obvious source of David's glory the obvious, if you were to end the sentence, why, why is David glorious as compared to whoever he's next to? You'd say, well, it's because David is the king. David's the king of Israel. He, he's the one who's the king. On, on being a king is what, rests David, is what David's glory rests upon. But that's not where David goes. Even that kingship is fickle. He says, on God rests my glory. The seat of David's identity is resting on God. Saying, you are the one who most clearly defines me. There's, there are so many connections between last week's message on dignity and this week's message. Because our silence forces us to come into contact with ourselves in those deepest aspects of our personalities. And David is saying that even that you put there, and whatever is good there, whatever may be glorious there, is only from God. On God alone rests my glory. 
We have all sorts of ways of trying to cultivate glory. A good way to see it is if I only had X, then I would feel worthy or valuable or able to take or bear this sort of shame. That X is on what your glory truly rests. That thing that you're fighting for that feels so threatened, that when it feels threatened, it feels like the core of you is threatened. Your glory. It's the success of your business. It's the success of your children. It's those things that we use to cultivate glory. And David is saying, those don't work. On God rests my salvation and my glory. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 captures this same theme, the many places that we could put our glory He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So when David secures his glory as only in the Lord, he's rejecting all of these other opportunities that he has for the things that he can boast in, in order to justify himself, in order to explain why his existence is valid, in order to remove his shame, in order to deal with the threat to his glory from the enemies around him. He rests on God alone. He creates this silent space where he says, I'm going to know you in this. Instead of resting it on some solution I can concoct, I'm going to rest it in you. So from this position, silent before God, David's prayer then becomes notedly not silent. See, that's the issue with silence as just a method. Silence is an ingredient. (laughs) It isn't the answer. Because the silence results in this exclamation, this pouring out of his heart. And he even draws us into it. He says in 62, this is verse 8 through the end, says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. He exclaims with this incredible clarity where all of a sudden these enemies that in the beginning seemed so big, now he has this clarity of what their position really is. It says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. He's saying these people have no capacity to bestow any real glory. They're just a breath. That sort of capacity only belongs to God. So now these these things, which seemed like these incredible threats, now in his silence before the Lord and choosing to meditate on who the Lord is versus the complexity of his enemies, he's able to see in a real way where the glory truly lies. Lighter than a breath when you put them together. 
In Colorado, we have a lot of ways of seeking glory. I sat next to, uh, one day at Keystone, I sat next to the uh, guy who has the most vertical feet skied on Epic Mix on the app. So he's got all the badges on the Epic Mix app, which logs how many vertical feet you ski. And he skied the most for the past two years. He's going to set a Guinness world record for like most vertical feet skied. And he was a recently retired engineering professor, recently divorced from his wife, was out of contact with his children. And he wakes up and he skis every day. It, I got off the chairlift and I was like, well, that was like a depressing conversation. <laughs> I'm here to forget my problems, not take on yours. But the point is, is, is that who we're all chasing <laughs> in how many ski days we can log? See, the, the glory, right, is just like a vapor. It's an empty bag. These things that we set all of the hope of our lives in, we don't stop to consider, what am I really looking to get from this? We don't stop to consider, is, is that really the thing that I want? Is the most ski days ever, is that the type of thing that if I have the most ski days ever, I can sit silently before God? What does God say to that? See, the, the incredible thing about being able to sit silently before the Lord is it seems to be both a, 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 a diagnostic and, and sort of a means. Being able to sit silently before God, it, it diagnoses what you think justifies you. It diagnoses who, who do you, what do you think would give you the ability to sit before God silently in his presence without clamoring to justify yourself. And I think it's also a means, as we see in this text, of you, you must sit silently before God in order to part from those other things that you're trusting in. Jesus says it like this, Mark 8, 35 to 36, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to figure out a way to gain all the glory in the world and not be able to sit silently before his creator? All those sources of glory that we get caught up in are empty. And it seems almost naive to say, I'm sitting before God alone, on God rests my salvation and my glory. It's not naive. It's considering the facts. The final thing is what this exposes about what David thinks about God and what we can know even more completely than David. On God can rest your salvation only if God is the type of God who saves. We've seen that completely, that God is the type of God who saves. We've seen that in Jesus, who gave his life that we might have it. If you're truly acquainted with your sin, if you're truly acquainted with who you are, then you'll know that you can't sit silently before God and be justified in any way. The only way you could is if you had a life like Jesus's. So if you lose your life for the sake for Jesus' sake and the Gospels, uh, then your life will be saved. 
if you let go of all those other sources of glory and you hope in the gospel for your glory, you can sit silently before the Lord and be saved. So with that, let's take some questions. On a very practical level, how do we build the discipline to interrupt our thoughts and usher in silence when our negative thoughts have such a tight hold? So when I was talking about this sermon with my wife, I asked, what, what do you think silence before the Lord means? And she was like, I don't know. What do you think it means? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, I thought my prep was done. <laughs> because the silence here, it, it doesn't seem to be like an emptiness. It seems to be a real focus on God's word. So that was, that's the first thing, is just that idea of ushering in silence. Uh, the, the, I just want to be clear that the silence isn't an emptiness. The silence isn't a lack of thought. That's impossible. The silence is a way that David is describing his demeanor towards God. Which is one of, it, he's anticipating that God is a savior. And that his ultimate hope truly is from God. So that's the first thing, is ushering in silence is ushering in the word of God. The second thing is, I hope that you were able to see in that David interrupts himself, it means that you aren't going to go off and cultivate a uh, sort of silent skill set without first taking that immediate step of the interruption. And how do you do that? You, you just do it. You interrupt it with the word of God. You do it. I was also, I was, in that same conversation with Megan, my wife, I was, uh, I was saying, you know, this is one of those things that I haven't been good at, like sitting silently before the Lord. Uh, I feel like my mind just rushes back and clogs up with all of these other things. And uh, I realized that being silent before the Lord is sort of like reading we don't like to read. We like to have read. We don't like to be silent before the Lord. We like to have been silent before the Lord. We, we like to have been the type of people who uh, understand themselves because uh, of seeing God's word revealed and, and, and incorporating those things deeply into their thought life. We want to live with those sorts of attributes, but we don't want to interrupt this Instagram feed. <laughs> we don't want to interrupt our scroll. And that's where it happens. We need to, we need to interrupt. I, I mean, the, that, the answer to that question amounted to just, to just do it. Um, so that's the answer. <laughs> Next question. Great. Okay. Um, now's a good time to start. We're going to have a time of communion. So much of this is just another way of saying faith. Have faith. Faith is where instead of you just tra chasing down the thought train that Perhaps you can get to the bottom of the answer to this question on your own. It's in your own head. Faith is saying, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. Because when I lean against that wall, it falls over. Instead, I'm going to trust in the Lord. And, and you do that by interrupting yourself and directing your thoughts towards his word. As we take communion, it is an open communion, which means you don't need to be a member of our church. However, it is a public proclamation that your glory rests on Christ alone. As you say, I'm united to him by uh, his broken body and his poured out blood, which the bread and the wine represent. 
So if you aren't declaring that, then don't take it. However, if it seems as though uh, God in his mercy has revealed to you how fickle what you rest your glory in is, and that you'd like to rest it in Jesus, then you can't do that on your own. That's only God working in you. So celebrate that with communion. So with that, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make yourself such a reality to us that we would be able to sit silently before you and know that we aren't alone. Beyond that, Lord, that we would be able to develop such a hope in you that obedience to what you're calling us to becomes the most obvious answer. Father, give us the faith to trust you in the midst of all sorts of clamor. Thank you for giving us your son that we might be justified so that we could possibly sit before you in silence because we've seen so clearly your grace demonstrated to us. Father, show us now in these moments what else our glory is resting on that we might rest our glory only on you. Father, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.